All right, we are in Mark chapter six. So let's open up our Bibles. Mark six, we're gonna be looking at Jesus walking on water. Hello. <laughs> Those are important. I've done that before. That is not fun. All right, Mark six. And before we actually get into uh, our study for today, let's do a little bit of review. Last week, we looked at the feeding of the 5,000 men what were some of the observations that we were able to make about Jesus in that study? And Jesus fed the feeding of the 5,000. He was compassionate. Yes, he was very compassionate. He cared for their physical needs, right? Their temporal needs. Uh, the disciples came to Jesus and said, hey, these guys are hungry. These guys back here, not us, even though we haven't eaten, uh, they're, they're hungry. Uh, and Jesus showed them compassion, fed them. Um, yes, good. What else? He, I think he saw they had like a spiritual need too. Like they were sheep without a shepherd. Absolutely. So it wasn't just the, the physical, but he was addressing the, the spiritual too. And so even in, in that story, as well as today, we see the, the compassion and the tenderness of Jesus paired with his, his power and his might and his strength, showing that he can take five loaves and two fish, and he can feed a, a crowd of not just 5,000, but closer to 25,000, uh, including women and children. And he did it without breaking a sweat, right? And um, we went, we looked at the, the response the next day in, in John chapter 6, the response that these people had after being fed by the, the Lord on high who made himself low. And how did that response that we look at in John chapter 6 relate to Herod in our study the week before and his reaction to John the Baptist? What were the, the similarities that we noticed there? Do you remember how the people responded in John chapter 6 after being fed the bread and the fish? John 6, 66. I remember that because those three sixes that are quite infamous, right, in Christianity. It says, as a result of this, uh, this is, we'll look at this a little bit more today, but Jesus saying, well, you need to, you need to eat my flesh. You need to, I am the bread of life who's come down. You need to eat my flesh. And it says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So just the, the very next day after being fed all this, um, this fish and bread. They stopped following Jesus and they, they had turned away from him. How does that correspond with uh, Herod and his response to the truth of the gospel? And he had heard the message and he liked hearing the message yes. from John, but he turned away. Yeah. That is so common for so many to taste that that grace to taste that truth and to have a desire even for that truth there's so many people who uh yesterday uh we went to a debate um joseph and danielle and Brittany and myself and we saw these atheists who were continually borrowing from the christian worldview because they have this undeniable undeniable desire for truth even though they with their mouth they deny objective morality um they still will appeal to objective truth. And they will say, well, pedophilia is objectively wrong and rape and murder is objectively wrong. 
and they they have that desire for some truth. And there are people who have even more of a desire for truth, even to the point where they will um, like people like John the Baptist and say, hey, come and, come and talk to me, come and teach me. And they will be drawn to people like Jesus. They will even be regulars in a, a church service at a church building, and yet they won't fully surrender to the Lord. They won't embrace the truth. They, they taste of the truth, but they don't um, actually claim it as their own. All right, and so they both tasted of the truth, but ultimately rejected it. Um, and before, again, we get into the specifics of our passage today, I want to go back even further. I'm really going to test your guys' memory this morning and talk about the, the purposes of the four different gospel authors. This was like lesson number two that we went over. We are now on lesson 26, I believe. So it's a long time ago, but think back to why these different authors were writing the Gospels. Who was the author of the book of Matthew? <laughs> Levi slash Matthew, right? And he was writing to whom? The Jews. To the Jews. For what purpose? To identify Jesus as king. Good job. Now Mark. Hopefully we get this. Who is the author of Mark? Mark. Yeah, John Mark. Good. And he is writing to whom? The Romans. To the Romans and his purpose? Jesus is a suffering servant. Suffering servant. Good. All right. Now maybe we get a little bit more difficult. Luke. Who was the author of Luke? <laughs> a little timidity there, right? A little trepidatious, but yes, it was uh, Luke the physician. And who was he writing to? Remember, he had one person in particular that he addressed Theophilus. his letter to. Theophilus. Yeah, most excellent Theophilus, right? And the purpose that he was writing for? To document really what was going on with Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, he was a, a historian, right? Documenting very spe specifically the things that he had learned and, and recorded. And throughout that documentation, he is identifying Jesus as the Savior to all. Now, uh, we talked about how Luke is writing to Theophilus. I just put Theo up here because I was limited on space. Uh, but we can also gather that he had intended for this letter to be uh, spread more broadly than just Theophilus, but to be circulated among many other Gentiles as well. He would take and he would substitute uh, Jewish words like Rabbi or Hosanna or Abba, and he would put in uh, the, the Greek equivalents. And he also cited the Septuagint, whereas uh, the other writers, they would cite the Hebrew scriptures. And so he was writing to Theophilus as well as to the Greeks. And then John, who was John writing to? It was the Apostle John who was writing, but who was he writing to? What was his target audience? Everyone. Yeah, he had everybody in view, right? That Jesus came to save all people. And his purpose in writing was what? Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Good. So... I'm very proud. You guys remembered that quite well. Those are very important aspects to remember as we're going through the Gospels that they are four different Gospels written by four different authors. Um, as they were being carried along by the one single author, the capital A author, the Holy Spirit, 
but they are writing with different purposes to different audiences. We need to keep that in mind. <clears throat> Let me ask you, is Matthew the only author who recognizes Jesus as king? No. Good. That was a quick no. Um, is there anyone other than Mark who is documenting Jesus' suffering, the fact that he came to service? <clears throat> that, yeah, there are other people, right? Mark's not singular in, in that regard. Other people recognize, yes, Jesus suffered. <laughs> the, the crucifixion, the cross, is uh, referenced in all the Gospels. That is the, the highlight, the, vocal, the focus point of all the Gospels. Uh, and Luke isn't the only author to mention salvation for other nations, is he? Um, just in a couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at the Syrophoenician woman, this Gentile woman who Jesus shows grace and mercy to. And yet, many have asserted that John is unique in his identifying Jesus as God. Have you guys heard that before? Has that come to your ears? Okay. Not, you, you won't hear that from this pulpit, right? Uh, not in this church, but um, people like the, the men that we were seeing at the debate last night, people who are uh, atheistic, people who are not believers, even potentially some liberal believers, I guess I would draw their, their salvation into question a little bit, um, would suggest that this was a, a developing doctrine that... Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they didn't understand Jesus to be God. But John, which was written later on, right? Matthew and Mark were in 50 to 60 AD. Uh, Luke was written in 60, 61 AD. And uh, John wasn't written until 80 or 90 AD. And so people will suggest, well, that was a developing doctrine that John came and he said, Jesus is God. Before that, um, nobody really understood Jesus to be God. Uh, like I said, this is a, a wrong understanding. This is a liberal understanding. Um, let me share you this quote from Bart Ehrman. He's a Christian apostate who was, he once named the name of Christ, claimed the name of Christ, and has since left. He says, you do not find Jesus calling himself God in the gospel, or you do find Jesus calling himself God in the gospel of John, or the last gospel. Jesus says the things like before Abraham was, I am, and I am the fa- I and the Father are one. And if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Those are all quotes from the Gospel of John. That's what he says right there. These are all statements that you find only in the Gospel of John, and that's striking because we have earlier Gospels and we have the writings of Paul, and in none of them is there any indication that Jesus said such things. I think it's completely implausible that Matthew, Mark, and Luke would not mention that Jesus called himself God if that's what he was declaring about himself. Bart Ehrman is a very popular scholar and has a lot of influence. And this isn't uh, a unique understanding that he and he alone has. This is pretty popular amongst liberal Christianity. And so we're going to address that a little bit today from the Gospel of Mark, looking at our passage and showing that um, that's not the case at all. And hopefully you guys recognize right off the bat that's not the case, but we'll see that pretty clearly in our text today. <clears throat> Does anybody recognize these two Greek words up on the screen? Ego I me. Yes. All right, good. Ego a me. It's I am, right? And these are words that uh, we see 
most often in the Gospel of John. Uh, these are words that speak to the aseity of Jesus, perhaps you, or of, of God proper. Um, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all have aseity. That means that they have life within themselves. That so comes from the Latin, which means uh, from self to have self-existence, that they don't have anybody who pours into them, anybody who has given them uh, life or power or strength, that um, they're not dependent upon anybody else. God doesn't have a, a mom and a dad. He didn't have a, a teacher. He has no counselors. He is uh, a say. He has a say a T. And we get this understanding. We see this concept all the way back in Exodus, in Exodus 3.14. When God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So this understanding, this concept that the Lord, Yahweh, is the self-existent one. He is the one who is without beginning, without end. He isn't um, constrained by time. He doesn't say I was or, or I will be, but I am at all points in time. He is transcendent over space and time. He is the great I am. We see this later on in Isaiah 41, verse 4, which says, Who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord Yahweh, am the first and I am the last. I am He. This is that concept, again, of that uh, self-existence. He doesn't owe his strength or his power, his existence to anybody else. He has life within himself. He is the great I am. The ego a me, right? Now, I want your help to go through and look at a, a couple other passages. We have these passages up on the screen. If you guys could look up those ones in yellow, Isaiah 43, 10 through 13, John 11, 25 and 26, and Revelation 1, 8. We'll look at those together and see how this concept is used both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament by Jesus himself. So Isaiah 43, 10 through 13, a great passage to uh, know at least the reference to, if not to have memorized, especially here in Utah, as we're dealing with Latter-day Saint folks. Um, who has Isaiah 43, 10 through 13 for us? All right, Jerry. You are my witnesses, declared the declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior beside me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity, I am He. And there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? Amen. And Lord there that you were reading, how is that spelled in your translation? It's capitals. Yeah, all capitals. So speaking of Yahweh, the Lord, the self-existent one, who is the great I am, who has no God before him, no God after him. In the following chapter, it says, is there any other savior? Is there any other rock? I know of none, which uh, surprisingly, that seems to hit a little bit harder with some of our LDS friends than Isaiah 43. The fact that um, 
Yahweh knows of no other God. That's a good one to keep in mind as well. Uh, John 8, jumping over into the New Testament, John 8, verse 12, um, this is Jesus talking where he says that he is the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus comes on the scene, and he is identifying himself with the Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. And he says, I am the light of the world. I am, um, he says in, in chapter 10, the, the good shepherd. I am the door of the sheep. In John eight fifty eight, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you that before Abraham was, I am. So that is a, a great identification of Jesus um, as Lord, as Yahweh. He is making claim to being not only the, the great I am, the self-existent one, but he is claiming to be before Abraham. And they said, you're not, dude, you're not even 50. What do you mean you're before Abraham? And uh, he, he was the creator of Abraham and, and all things that came before or after Abraham, right? That there is nothing in heaven and earth that wasn't created by him and for him and, and through him, that he is the creator. What about John 11, 25 and 26? Who's got that for us? All right, go ahead, Joseph. And you can get the next one. Okay. Uh, it says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? All right, amen. So he says, I am the resurrection and the life. That he has, like Yahweh, life within himself. That he can offer that life to others. If you believe in Jesus, you will never die. Because he is the great I am. The, the ego in me, the self-existent one who is without beginning, without end, no God before, no God after. That is Jesus. And he's making claim to that very clearly. Uh, in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. John 15, 1 says, I am the vine, the, the Father is the vine dresser. Uh, says the same thing a few verses later in verse 5, that I am the vine, you are the branches, and uh, if you abide in me, then you'll bear fruit. And nobody can abide, nobody can bear fruit unless he abides in me, because he is the great I am. And then the very last book that we have in our New Testament, Revelation 1 8. What's that say, Andy? I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. All right, the Almighty. That's a good one for Jehovah's Witnesses, right? They'll make a distinction between. God, Yahweh, the, the Almighty, and Jesus, who is mighty. He's, he's kind of God. He's God-like in their theology. No, not according to Revelation 1.8, right? He is the, the first and last. He is the Almighty God. That is the great I Am that we worship. That is Jesus, right? That's largely from Isaiah, from John. So that um, is kind of where Bart Ehrman is, is getting these ideas. Not from Isaiah because that was 700 years before Christ. But he says, well, look, John is, is later. In Revelation, that was written even later than that. Um, I would put a date on that of 94 to 96 AD. And so he's saying, this is a, a developing theology. Not so, right? We'll look at that here in uh, Mark chapter 6. Let's go ahead and read our passage real quick. We'll be in Mark 6, 45 through 56. We'll make it through the end of the chapter today. I'll go ahead and read that for us, and then we'll jump in and tear it apart. Starting in verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side of Bethsaida, 
while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, it was about the fourth hour of the night. He came to them, walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land, to land at Gennesaret, and moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him, and ran about the whole country, and began to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick, to the place they heard he was. Wherever he entered villages, or cities, or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces, and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak, and as many as touched it were being cured. Now, you might notice that on our screen, it says Mark 6, 45 through 46, Jesus, nothing. It's just a blank title. I have not titled this slide. What should we title it? Looking at Mark 6, 45 through 46, just those first two verses. Any ideas how we might title this slide, how we might summarize those two verses? It says, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side of Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. Any ideas? Necessity for prayer. Hmm? Necessity for prayer. All right. Yeah, Jesus' necessity for prayer. That's good. Any other thoughts? You guys remember the the three basic steps of Bible study, right? What are the three basic steps of Bible study? Yes, <laughs> that is important too, right? Interpretation, yeah. observation. Yeah. What one comes first, observation or interpretation? <laughs> I'd say it's observation. Yes, good, observation. So look at the text, what does it say? And then interpret it, what does it mean? What is it saying? And then what? Application. All right. So first observe the text, then interpret the text, then apply the text. And that order is quite important, right? So we've observed the text and saw that, um, as, as Jim mentioned, even Jesus is praying, right? What are some other things that we see in the, the text? What, what else is happening here? He's sending people away. Good. And who is he sending away? His disciples. And then the crowd. Yep. He, he sent his disciples away in, in one direction, in the boat, right? And then he dismissed the crowd and sent the crowd away. So two different groups of people that Jesus is sending away in different directions with different um, places of de- different destinations in mind. All right. What else do we see in this text? And, and how, I, how might we understand it? Why... Why do we suppose that Jesus is sending these people away? So we can pray. Okay. He needs some alone time with God. All right. That's one conclusion we could come to, right? To to get some alone time. That's good. 
and says that Jesus was uh, seeking to, to be alone, so he left and went away to the mountain, right? Uh, let me give a little bit more. Say goodbye, though. It says after bidding farewell. So, you know, he took some time to say goodbye. We'll catch up kind of thing. It wasn't like he was like, get out of here. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's... Um, here, let me offer a little bit more insight here. The the word for made in verse 40... 40, is that right? Um, no, yeah, 45. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. So that word for made is more often translated compelled or forced. And it implies some, some pressure that Jesus had to compel and, and force his disciples. You guys, go get in the boat kind of thing, right? A little bit more stern. Get in the boat. You guys are, are going on the other side. And then he made the, or he dismissed the, the rest of the crowd. So again, going back to what we learned from the people's response last week in John chapter 6. Uh, remember, after Jesus fed them the, the bread and the fish and he had this big miracle. Uh, let's revisit that a little bit. Mark 6, or sorry, John 6, 14 through 15. It says, therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. So taking that into account, um, why might Jesus be breaking up this teaching session? Why might Jesus be sending the disciples away on the boat? And dismissing the other crowd. To prevent a mob. Yeah, because they are politically driven, right? They have a, an Old Testament understanding of the Messiah, um, which in, in some respects is right. They know that the Messiah is going to have a political kingdom, that he is going to reign as king, that he is going to be the one who is going to um, think back to Daniel 7 and the, the statue the, from the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. Um, the, the one who, the rock who comes out that's shaped without hands and crushes this statue and um, out of this rock raises a, a mountain. They realize that's the Messiah and, and Jesus, he must be the Messiah. He's going to be this king. We need to usher in this kingdom. He needs to lead us in this revolt against Rome, right? So they are politically driven. They are uh, zealous, just like Simon, the zealot, to get Rome out of the, the picture and to establish Jesus as a king to lift him up so that his reign can begin and <clears throat> Jesus says no I'm, I'm not having that that's not what I'm here for that, that's not the right timing right my hour has not yet come and so it's very likely I think it's actually plausible that his disciples were kind of in on this remember that James and John they were asking to, to sit at his right and left hand in the kingdom and at this point, I think that we'll see in our text later on that their hearts are still hardened, that they're still blinded. They don't understand these things. God hasn't revealed these things to them. So I think that they're kind of right there along with the crowd saying, yeah, Jesus, why, why don't you ascend to the king? Why don't you uh, go and tell Caesar what's up and tell him to take a hike? Because you are the true king. Um, and Jesus says, no, listen, you guys, my, my 12, the, the ones that I've set apart, that I've commissioned, you guys go get on this boat. You guys need to get out of here, right? And then Jesus is tasked with sending off this crowd of, remember, close to 25,000. 
these people that are now all in a riot and uproar and they want to make him king, uh, that would be no easy task for sure. So even in this situation, we can see Jesus' selfless service that he dismisses his disciples. He says, you guys can go. You guys actually need to go. You need to get out of here, away from uh, this influence that you shouldn't be listening to. And he stays back, and he's the one to send away the crowd. We see kind of the opposite in our world today, that uh, people who are of high status, politicians and and athletes and actors and musicians, they have uh, bouncers and press secretaries and um, security to quote unquote, take care of the people for them, right? If they don't want to deal with the people, they'll send somebody else out. Hey, just go, go tell them I'm, I'm busy or I have another meeting or something, right? But Jesus says, no, I'll, I'll take care of them. And we're not told how he dismisses this crowd, but somehow Jesus tamps down this crowd and sends them away. And it's just kind of a, a brief little note that we have in scripture that he, he sends away this crowd that is in this uproar and they're wanting to make him king. Um, we get a, a little bit of insight into John chapter 6. We'll look at that here in a little bit. But um, yeah, Jesus sends them away to kind of quelch their, uh, their desires to, to lift them up and, and make them king. Is there any application that we can take from these couple of verses? Verse 45 and 46. What does this mean for us? Having observed this and sought to make an interpretation of what's going on here, what Jesus is doing here, how can we apply these two verses personally? Personally, to understand he doesn't need our help to make him king. Amen. His kingdom is not of this world. We don't need to try to prepare the earth for him to come back. Amen. Jesus does not at all need our help to make him king. Uh, we don't need to usher in the kingdom. That is a, a great application. He is, again, the one with a Sadie, right? He had no need before us. He has no need now. Uh, we have this uh, tendency to, to elevate ourselves in, in our minds and to project on God that he has some kind of need for us that he, he created us because he was lonely, because he needed us. He needed somebody to love and care for. No, he had himself, right? That's why we, we teach a, a triune God. He had inter-Trinitarian love and, and compassion. And he had no need for us then. He has no need for us now. He has no need for us to, to build up his kingdom. He is the, the self-existent one who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and he doesn't need a counselor, right? Good. Any other application you guys see that we can draw from those two verses? Just that our understanding is in no way as high as God's understanding. Jesus knew it was not his time, but men did not understand that. So an application just to remember that our understanding will always fall short. Amen. Good. Back to Isaiah again, right? His thoughts are higher, his ways are higher, and uh, we need to realize that. That's good. And ultimately, the man who was God needed time away, private time with the Father, sinless, um, not needing any 
human help, so to speak. Hmm. We as fallen creatures need it more. Absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting that he goes off on his own to pray, right? We saw this before back in chapter 1, verse 35, that Jesus went off and um, he separated himself from the crowd. It says, In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went away to a secluded place, and he was praying there. And if the, the Lord of glory takes that time to commune with God, how much more ought we to do the same, to, to lean on him for that strength and that power um, in this practice of prayer? We definitely see throughout Scripture uh, a command for, for corporate prayer, for coming together for prayer, but we also see an, an outline for personal prayer, for praying on our own individually as well. Jim. I guess we could also say we need to be careful not to be influenced by the world, by the mob mentality. Jesus was king. He was going to be crowned king, but it wasn't the time. It wasn't God's will, and we need to be careful about that. We need to be about doing what God has clearly shown us to do yep. and not be influenced by the way the world is going. Yes. Good. Yeah, his will for us is our sanctification right? Are growing in Christ-likeness. Good. <clears throat> we do have um, somewhere here, right here, we prioritize prayer in this life as we live for the next, right? We see Jesus was doing that. He was prioritizing prayer. He was making space for himself to be able to commune with God and to pray with God. And I think it's good if we ask ourselves if, if this is truly a, a personal priority that we have, or if it's just a sign that we have on the wall of the church building, um, I'm personally convicted by that myself. I know that I don't know if we could ever get to a place where we're satisfied with our, our prayer life, and, and that's good. We need to always be evaluating our prayer life and seeking to make it a priority. All right. And seeing when he actually, when the scene shifts in walking on the water, you notice how much time he spent. The time it took him to get rid of all those people took a while, but then he was praying a long time. He was Indeed. A long time. He was. Good. I'm glad you mentioned that. Let's take a look at the, the timeline a little bit of how long Jesus was actually praying. So at this point in the text, uh, Jesus has separated himself from the disciples. They're on the boat, headed off to the other side. And Jesus took care of the, the situation of the crowd of 20, 25,000, sent them away. And now he is alone on the shore. He's spent, spent some time in prayer. Um, let's look at uh, verse 47 says, When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was contrary, it was against them. It was about the fourth watch of the night. So I have this, that's going to be really hard for you guys to see, but that's about as big as I could make it. Uh, this timeline kind of shows and breaks up the, the Jewish day a little bit. You might see on the top left that it's 6 a.m. that the Jewish day starts at. But they split up the evening into four different watches. The first watch took place um, from starting at 6 p.m. going until 9 o'clock. And the second watch from 9 p.m. to midnight. Third from midnight until 3 a.m. And then the fourth watch was 3 a.m. to 4 a.m. And these different watches, um, watches of the night, they had different names that were associated with them, different titles that were associated with them. Uh, the first watch of the night was called evening. 
over in John 6, 16, it says that when evening came, the disciples went out to see. This is when the disciples left to see, when evening came. So likely around 6 o'clock, they went out to see. And we see here in our passage that in verse 47, that when it was evening, the boat was out in the middle of the sea. So it didn't take them long to get out into the, the middle of the sea. Uh, John Grasmick in the Bible Knowledge Commentary, he says that this isn't talking about a, a geographical center to the sea, but rather it's conveying the idea that they were uh, far out into the lake. John actually uses uh, the term, it's translated over three to four miles out into the lake. So they were pretty far out into the lake. So the first watch of the night is called evening. The second watch of the night is referred to as midnight. The third is cock crowing when the, the rooster is crowing. And the fourth is morning. So we have these four different uh, ways to break up the, the four evening watches. And what did the text say? What time um, did Jesus head out to them? What watch was it? Four. Yeah, it was the fourth watch. It says in verse 48 that seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, it was about the fourth watch of the night that Jesus came to them. So if we do the math on this, if they went out at evening during this first watch, and it was a fourth watch that Jesus came out to them, uh, we get to see that it was six to, to nine, maybe even upwards of 12 hours that they had been struggling on the lake. Now, you might remember from past studies, it only takes two hours to cross this lake in good weather. And that's if you're going all the way across. They weren't even crossing all the way. They were just going about four miles away. So it shouldn't take them that long at all. But they're spending upwards of maybe nine hours or so struggling at um, getting across. The word straining at the oars, it could be translated tormenting or, or torture. They were in pain out on the sea trying to get across the sea again for a number of hours. This was a, a serious struggle for them. Um, and remember that a number of them were professional fishermen. So they're not, um, this isn't foreign territory for them, right? They're used to being out on this sea, especially. This is something they should be familiar with. And so we are informed that this is a, a pretty serious storm that they're encountering here. And we don't know for sure what Mark meant when he says that Jesus saw them out on the, the sea. There have been a couple of different understandings. Some people think that um, perhaps he saw them supernaturally, because after all, he is God, that he saw them supernaturally. Perhaps he saw them with his very human eyes by the, the glow of the moonlight. Some have even suggested that he saw them in the, the early light of dawn. Uh, but we don't know. The text doesn't say. So we don't do super well to try to speculate, but whatever we, we do know, we know that Jesus saw them out there in their hour of need, struggling and striving again for hours, trying to get um, over across the sea. And so Jesus was watching them. He was aware of their struggle. Um, and once again, we can kind of see um, in, in the white parts of our Bible, right? It doesn't explicitly state this, but Jesus was caring for his disciples. He was um, compassionate towards them and taking watch over them. These were, these were his guys. And he was worried about them knowing, worry's not the right word. He was concerned, concern's not the right word either. Uh, I don't know what the right word is. He, he cared for them, right? And he knew what they were going through. 
He was watching over them, and he decided to intervene. It says in the, the latter part of verse 48 that at the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, for he intended to pass them by, or pass by them, rather, not pass them by. And um, this is a, an important phrase. I don't think that he was just messing with them, that he was trying to um, pull a, a joke on his buddies, um, trying to, to spur on these concerns that they had about ghosts and, and freak them out and make them kind of second guess what Jesus might have put in that bread that they ate or <laughs> if the, the fish that they had just consumed was bad. Um, I don't think that that was Jesus' intention to truly go by them and, and freak them out. I think that when it says that Jesus intended to pass them by, it was a, a reference to what we see often in the Old Testament in uh, different theophanies that are appearing in the Old Testament. What is a, a theophany? What is that big theological word referring to? It's a pre-incarnation appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Yeah, it's God revealing himself uh, in the Old Testament. And yeah, we can get specific. A, a Christophany is Jesus in his pre-incarnate form um, revealing himself to these people. So let's look up these passages here. Uh, will somebody look up those two yellow references there? Exodus 33 in 1 Kings 19. These are great passages. Um, we looked not too long ago at Exodus 33 and 34 in um, one of our sermons that was talking about Moses' face being veiled. That was a message we had not too long ago. But who's got that passage for us? Exodus 33, 18 through 22. Abby. Will you drop it down and get 34.6? So God is passing by Moses to reveal his glory to him, to show himself and reveal himself to Moses. It says, And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Amen. That is how God describes himself. Merciful and gracious, long-suffering. Those occasions when God describes himself and his own attributes. Those are always precious. Uh, jumping forward, John or Job rather, 9 uh, verses 1 and 2 says that then Job answered, in truth I know that this is so, but how can a man be in, be in the right before God? He goes through a, a number of ways just talking about God's transcendence and how can we even commune with each other? How can we know who you are? And in verse 11 he says, were he to pass by me I would not see him. Were he to move past me, I would not perceive him. Uh, we see a couple things there. We see Job's immense humility, that he realizes his position before God. I, I can't even be there. But we see God's transcendence, and he talks about God revealing that transcendence by using this terminology, this phrase, passing by. And then 1 Kings 19.11. Who's got that verse for us? 
1 Kings 19.11. Alright. And this is God interacting with uh, Isaiah on the mountain. Perhaps you guys are familiar with this. That, um, several different ways that Isaiah experienced and God wasn't in the fire. God wasn't in um, these big, grandiose ways. What's that? So he said, go forth and stand Elisha. on the mountain before the Lord. Sorry. We, sorry. Oh, go ahead. No, okay. I, I said Isaiah mistakenly, but yes, it's oh. Elisha. So he said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. All right. But, so that's good. So the Lord was passing by. That was how God was revealing himself to Elijah, by passing by. Um, and then we, we see the same terminology used here in Mark 6 that says um, that he, Jesus, came to them walking on the sea and he intended to pass by them. Again, I don't think he's messing with his buddies. I think he's <laughs> intending to show them, to reveal to them Himself, Jesus was revealing himself to the disciples so they would know and see Jesus for who he is. That he is the divine maker of the universe. He is Yahweh himself. Um, what is significant about the fact that Jesus is walking on the water? <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm glad I'm, I'm getting these kind of dumb looks like Tyler walking on water. Because I think oftentimes in church, we, we kind of breeze over that. Like, yeah, Jesus walked on water. But that is supernatural, right? That is so different. That is so unique, so out of this world that it is a divine act, right? Who can walk on the water except for the creator who created the water itself? Um, he has power over creation. Uh, John MacArthur says, out of darkness, in the midst of the howling wind, and splashing waves, Jesus moved to the disciples walking on the sea. The creator of the waters and the wind set food upon the set foot. It says food, but set foot upon the choppy surface as if it were hard as stone and smooth as glass, making his way to them in their hour of despair. So remember, the waves are all crazy and uh, things are scaring these fishermen disciples and yet Jesus just walks on it no problem because he is creator and he's trying to pass by them to reveal that to his disciples to show them exactly who he is now um, in verse 50 it says that they all saw him and they were they were terrified they were freaking out and immediately he spoke to them and he said to them take courage it is I do not be afraid Anybody want to take a guess at the Greek words that are there translated as it is I? Those are the same words we saw before. Ego eimi, right? I am. Jesus uses those words here in Mark, not just in John. Sorry, Bart Ehrman. But here in Mark, in 50 to 60 AD, Mark identifies that Jesus is identifying himself with this uh, self-existent God of the Old Testament with Yahweh who has no need for anybody else to to impart power to him. Jesus is the I am. And he's telling his disciples, you guys need to settle down. You guys need to stop tripping. I'm not a ghost. Um, let me pass by you. Let me reveal myself to you that I am in fact this I am. And surely after seeing Jesus 
walking on the water, his disciples would have understood this, right? They would have grasped the fact that Jesus is God. But if you remember Matthew's account, Peter says, well, Jesus, if, if it really is you, let me come out on the water with you, right? And uh, of course, we're, we're not going to look at that too in depth because we're in Mark, not in Matthew, but J- Peter goes out on the water and, and he sinks and uh, Jesus kind of rebukes him for his lack of faith. Um, and we see there a, a lack of faith that Peter still wasn't getting it. It wasn't clicking for Jesus. We see in verse 51 that he got into the boat with them and the wind stopped and they were utterly astonished. So after Jesus introduces himself with these words, the, that he is the I am, uh, he steps into the boat and he calms a sea without even a word. Remember just a couple of chapters before, back at the end of chapter four, Jesus calmed the sea. He rebuked the sea and the disciples were in awe. And they said, who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Well, here he just got into the boat. He didn't have to say anything. And the seas were completely calm. And maybe you're thinking, okay, well, surely now they get it, right? Well, no. Let's keep reading verse 52. It says, for they had not... So they were utterly astonished, 51, 52, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So even now at this point, we see that um, despite all of this, they, they still don't get it. Even after all these things, the disciples aren't seeing the fact that Jesus is the, the almighty God. Uh, think back over the last couple of chapters and everything that they've witnessed um, Jesus doing. Back in chapter 5, Jesus exercised his authority over the demons, right? And over the, the disease of the woman, over death itself by raising this young girl to life. And now they've seen twice Jesus exercise his authority over nature. At the end of chapter 4 and here at the end of chapter 6, Jesus is exercising that he not only controls the waves, but he walks on the waves. And they're still not seeing it. They're still not understanding that Jesus is God. It's, it's not clicking because they're blind. They, they had witnessed Jesus making bread out of nothing and see this connection back to, to Moses um, and how God provided the, the manna from heaven through Moses. And um, they, they're not seeing this greater Moses who has come this prophet that Moses uh, prophesied would come, who would be greater than him, who they ought to listen to. They're still not getting it. It's not clicking. Uh, Let's turn to John chapter 6 and look at that passage again. Remember, this is a a parallel passage. After the feeding of the 5,000, after um, Jesus is or in the midst of Jesus walking on the water. At this point, it's after he walks on the water. Um, I'll start reading in John 6, 26. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. He's calling them out. You guys, you're just hungry. You want food. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, Well, what shall we do so that we may do the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Simple, right? Just believe in God. 
and he already rebuked them for, for asking for a sign, for wanting to be filled. Verse 30, right after this, so they said to him, what do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? These guys are kind of dense, right? Jesus just told them, you're not getting a sign. You're not getting more food. I'm not going to give you breakfast. I gave you dinner last night. Because get over it. I am the sign, right? Believe in me. Verse 31. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that, which, is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. These were some hungry, dense disciples, right? Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. So he's getting pretty harsh with them. You guys are, you're just dense. I'm the bread of life. You guys need to get with the program, figure it out. Uh, stop being so ignorant, right? Uh, let's keep going on. 36. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you don't believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me I lose nothing. I will raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of the Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. So he's just hammering this over and over again. You guys need to believe in me. Stop looking for signs. Stop looking for bread. Uh, don't, don't ask me for another sign. I am the sign. Pay attention, right? 41. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about Him. So this is that, that crowd, right? The disciples, the day after, starting to get upset and starting to turn their back on Jesus. And they were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? That's the same thing we saw the people in Nazareth do, right? This, this guy, there's nothing special about him. Um, and here... In fact, we see a, a glimpse into the fact that they didn't have a, an understanding of uh, pre, what, what word am I looking for? Not pre-incarnation, but uh, pre-existence, right? Like we hear around here from the Latter-day Saints that we all existed before. They say, no, he didn't exist before. We know his mom and his dad. So they didn't believe in a, a pre-existence. Um, but verse 43, Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble against yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So we see that uh, there's this need for, for God to draw people to himself, for God to open up their eyes, for God to, to soften their hearts. So back in Mark 6.52, when we're seeing all these signs that God, Jesus, the, the second person of the Godhead is revealing himself to them. He is passing by them. He is walking on water. He's just made uh, bread and fish come up out of thin air. And he is saying, I am. Don't be afraid. It is me. I'm, that, that's me. The, the one in the burning bush, that was me. The one walking by Moses, that was me. You guys open up your eyes and see. And yet they, they remain hard. We see that this is a, a work of God. God has to draw people to himself. He is working on these disciples Slowly but surely, they're going to be given eyes to see. They're going to embrace Jesus as the Messiah. 
Uh, let's wrap up these last few verses really quickly, looking at Jesus' ministry being summarized at the end of Mark chapter 6. We see it says that when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret, and they moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him. So people were now very aware of who Jesus was. The effects of his ministry are now quite clear. He has become very popular. He has no need for an introduction, but there's an immediate recognition of who Jesus is. All of his works in Galilee, they are um, having an effect, and the word about Jesus is spreading. Verse 55 says that they, these people who were coming to Jesus, they ran about the whole country, and they began to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick to the place that they heard he was. Whenever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched him, touched it, were being cured. And so once again, we see this nonstop ministry of Jesus. Wherever he goes, he's always busy. He's always serving, always caring for these people. This ministry that is driven by love and compassion. That is who Jesus is. He came not to serve, but to be served, to give his life as a ransom for many. And we know uh, that he would have still been preaching this, uh, this message of the kingdom of God wherever he went. He's not just there to, to heal them. He's not just there to cast out demons, to, to make sick people well, but he's there preaching the, the kingdom of God. And the ultimate question is, what do these people do with their experience with Jesus, with their encounter with Jesus? The fact that he was preaching this to them, what do they do with that knowledge that they gain? What do they do with that experience that they have with Jesus? Are they going to act like Herod and just taste the truth and leave like this crowd that we just looked at in, in John 6 who um, they, they weren't his disciples any longer because they weren't seeing these signs, they weren't being fed anymore? Um, we have to ask these questions, not just of these people in the text, but of ourselves as well. What do we do with Jesus, with our encounter with Jesus? Um, we don't want to be like those 25,000 who are just there for a, a free meal. We want to embrace Jesus as who he is, as the great I am, as the one who uh, came to this earth to seek and to save the lost. Any quick questions or comments before we wrap up for a break? I was just thinking, you know, when he was getting out of them for, you know, just being pulled there, seeking after, like, food. Yeah. You know, I was just kind of thinking, I mean, obviously we have our physical needs, but it seems like, you know, him kind of being their shepherd, he's kind of there to be like, he's kind of there like, you know, balance, like, yeah, I, I know that you have physical needs, but ultimately it's it's important, too, to seek after, like, your spiritual uh, nourishment too. Like, yeah, and we, we looked at that a little bit last week, right? That he, he had compassion for them because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Um, that's, yeah, it's another insight into the compassion of Jesus and the, the lost state of, of our souls in our natural state. That's good. All right, let's pray and we'll dismiss. God, we thank you again that you are almighty. Jesus, thank you that you are the almighty, that you are God. Be with us this morning and be uh, elevated and lifted up in our hearts and our minds and in this building. We love you and praise you. Amen. Amen.